Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Guideposts in Motion, a podcast highlighting risks, compliance, and security professionals with insights meant to keep you, your business, and operations moving forward. My name is Eric Young, and I'm a Senior Managing Director at Guidepost Solutions. I'm excited to welcome back Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division at the U.S. Department of Justice for the Eastern District of New York, Alexandra Smith, for part two of our discussion. Alex, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So in our last podcast, Alex, I talked about the new enforcement paradigm in the wake of the successful prosecutions of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and money laundering violations by Goldman Sachs, guilty plea of Goldman banker Tim Leisner, and most recently the April 2022 conviction by jury of Goldman's Malaysia banker Roger Ong. We also spoke about the renewed DOJ approach as expressed by Deputy AG Lisa Monaco um, about corporate culture and the accountability of the C-suite, the empowerment of CCOs and CCO liability, which we'll talk in more detail um, in this part. But before we proceed, um, you mentioned about the Goldman case, the importance uh, around internal accounting controls. Um, can you uh, delve a little bit more into that? Sure. So, as I said, the, the FCPA's internal accounting controls provision criminalizes circumventions of a company's internal accounting controls. And, and basically, under the FCPA, um, issuers or companies that sort of fall um under the, the Securities and Exchange Act to, to sort of speak very broadly. And so that means generally issuers that uh, companies that issue public stock in the United States um, are required to maintain a system of internal accounting controls that ensure that the, the assets of the company um, are protected. And so that basically that there's a system in place to make sure that transactions are executed in accordance with uh, management's authorization and that you can only access certain assets that way. And, and there's sort of a, a series of requirements uh, for the internal accounting uh, control system that these companies need to have in place. And what the FCPA does is it criminalizes any individual that circumvents the accounting control system. And so in this case, the, the company at issue is uh, Goldman Sachs. And it, it's sort of an interesting case because obviously Goldman Sachs pled guilty to uh, violating the FCPA, uh, you know, because they had individuals at the company, including uh, Roger Ong and Tim Leisner, who were charged individually, who were involved in this bribery and money laundering scheme. But the individuals themselves were charged with also circumventing the internal accounting controls that Goldman had in place to prevent uh, being involved in this sort of criminal misconduct. And so, as I said, this is the first time that this charge went to trial and was tested. And the issue between the government and the defense on this question was that the, the statute criminalizes uh, circumvention. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to circumvent internal accounting controls? And the government's uh, perspective and again, this is all sort of laid out in our Rule 29 briefing, was that circumvention just meant getting around the internal accounting controls in whatever way 
whatever form that took. And in this particular case, Roger Ong, Tim Leisner, and others did in fact get approval for the transactions that were ultimately used to steal money from uh, the 1MDB Sovereign Wealth Fund from internal committees at Goldman Sachs that needed to provide that management authorization. And we said our, our theory was that the circumvention was that false information was given to those committees to sign off on the deals. So had the committees at Goldman had full information about the fact, for example, that bribes are going to be paid out of the transactions, they never would have approved the deals. And therefore, the authorization was obtained by fraud. The defense has said, actually, um, in order to criminalize circumvention, you have to sort of not go through the committee process at all. So, for example, the only way that you could circumvent Goldman's uh, internal accounting controls was to falsely say that the committees signed off on the deal when, in fact, you hadn't gone through the committee process. And so it's really arguing about what does circumvention mean um, and, and what steps need to be taken to have that circumvention be criminal. Uh, the court agreed with our perspective that you could obtain sort of approval by fraud. And uh, the defense is clearly going to sort of appeal that to the Second Circuit. And since this is the first case where this provision has ever been tested, it will be very interesting, I think, from a compliance perspective to, for people to understand what does circumvention of internal accounting controls mean and, and when is that uh, rise to the level of being a criminal action. Absolutely. And a lot of eyes will be on this from the compliance community or should be by the compliance community because internal accounting controls and compliance are not mutually exclusive. Uh, Books and records and the role of compliance over or relating to the books and records should not be mutually exclusive. And certainly circumvention, whether it's binary or more nuanced um, and the role that compliance plays over approvals should be um, a matter of importance. It it segues to my next question around uh, Assistant Attorney General Ken Polite's recent speech um, at a conference, the Compliance Week conference in, in Washington. It created a lot of buzz around the empowerment of chief compliance officers, the voice, the resources. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit of um, his speech and the DOJ um, approach and views about compliance in this regard. Yeah, so his speech, uh, as you said, really focused on how does the Department of Justice evaluate companies' um, existing compliance Programs. And that's important because when you're talking about the principles of federal prosecution um, and what used to be called the U.S. Attorney's Manual and now is called the Justice Manual, one of the factors that we look at when we think about whether to charge a company and also what form a corporate resolution uh, for criminal conduct will take is um, the effectiveness of a company's compliance program. And it can come uh, it can be considered in a number of different ways. For example, if it, the company has a really excellent compliance program and the company can show that there was a violation because you had an actor, you know, a rogue actor taking extraordinary steps to circumvent that program, for example, that may factor into whether or not um, the, you know, 
the DOJ actually charges the company or, or says it really was an individual uh, action and they're, they're going to elect not to charge the company. And it also factors into things that we've been talking about, like monitors. Um, you know, if a, if a company has a, a strong compliance program in place and can demonstrate that, that there may be less of a need for a monitor to help sort of uh, improve the compliance program. So there are a number of different ways in which compliance programs, the evaluation of them by the Department of Justice sort of come into play. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kenneth Polite's speech was really focused on, you know, what are we looking at when we talk about evaluating a compliance program? Um, And he sort of speaks uh, similar to me, has been both in the uh, public sector and the private sector, and he himself um, was a chief compliance officer. So it's a really interesting perspective to have to sort of then lay out what the department is looking at um, and, and be sort of realistic and understand how companies work and sort of what is possible and, and what does it mean to have a well-designed compliance program. Um, so he really sort of the three factors he laid out is that we want to see that it's um, well-designed, uh, which again means uh, sort of really assessing risk and tailoring a program to the risk presented to a particular company based on the industry in which they operate um, and maybe geographically what regions they're operating in um, and sort of understanding the key compliance risks and making sure the compliance program is addressed to those. So that's sort of the well-designed piece. He also said the Department of Justice is going to be focused on whether uh, compliance programs are adequately resourced and empowered, which is what you were talking about earlier. You you can have a a great looking program, (laughs) but if your compliance officer isn't reporting to the board of directors or or has sort of a clear line um, to the business end of the the company and, and is actually empowered to do something if they spot an issue, then then that's not an effective compliance program. So that's the second factor. And then third, whether it sort of works in practice, which basically means you you have it and the the lines of reporting are all where they're supposed to be, but are people actually reporting issues? Are issues actually being addressed when they're raised? And so those are sort of the the three high-level factors um, that he talked about and really, you know, talking about sort of not having it be a paper program or a check-the-box program, but as we've been discussing, have it integrated into the, the culture of the company. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've focused so much throughout my career, but also on uh, as highlighted in the third prong of, of, of the three being, is it working in, in practice? And it's another way of saying how well of an audit trail is there to monitor and ultimately report any exceptions or issues um, through testing, by compliance, internal audit, and then having the right metrics and data analytics rolling up to the board in a meaningful risk-based way for the board to oversee, to, to carry out their fiduciary duties of, of care and loyalty. Um, part of that really boils down to accountability. And certifications have um, become another buzz in the compliance, but it should be at, in the C-suite as, as well around uh, the DOJ's recent pronouncements around the CEO and the chief compliance officer certifying as part of these uh, uh, settlements uh, with the, between the DOJ and, and companies. Can you talk a bit about uh, certifications, uh, the way forward, 
particularly because certifications have been around um, for some time with SOX, Volker, uh, the DFS has one, Rule 504 on certifications. But this uh, pronouncement by the DOJ it seems to be really catching people's attention. So, Eric, I think that's right. I, you know, just just to make clear sort of how this got sort of put on the table or raised to people's attention, uh, I, I believe AAG kind of played, uh, gave two different speeches about compliance where he has sort of talked about having as an option um, as part of a resolution, the requirement that chief executive officers and chief compliance officers certify the accuracy of annual reports and the effectiveness of the company's um, compliance program. So it's really sort of was presented not as something that's going to be mandated, but something that um, prosecutors when fashioning corporate resolutions should consider whether this uh, these certifications should be part of um, the resolution and, and required uh, probably, you know, in most cases as part of a term of, a, again, a DPA or an MPA um, or in the course of a monitorship um, to have sort of certifications, as, you know, as again, as a, a tool in the toolbox as part of the resolution. And I agree with you, certifications have been around um, for a long time. And in fact, you know, the, the department has charged uh, false certifications uh, as part of sort of its FCPA regime. So again, I worked on the Odebrecht and Brascom cases. One of the individuals who was charged was um, uh, Jose Carlos Grubisich, who was the CEO for Brascom um, during part of the time period where bribes were being paid. And one of the charges against him was false certifications of um uh, annual reports. So this is something that sort of, as you said, has been around and has been um, something that can be criminally charged if, if mm. the certifications are not accurate. That said, I think, you know, it's it's not very common for that to be the case. And I, I do think that, you know, having uh, the CEO and the compliance officer certify um, the AAG police talk not only about uh, the annual reports, but also sort of a more general uh, compliance program effectiveness mm-hmm. and having them do that following this conduct during the period of either a monitorship um, or uh, another term of a resolution really puts additional emphasis on, I think, the idea that this is a tone from the top um, and that individuals will be held accountable for whether or not the compliance program is succeeding after there has been some sort of failure, right? Because that's why we're, we wind up with a criminal resolution. So I do think it puts a little bit of an exclamation point on um, that emphasis, and it does it in a very direct way following a criminal resolution. And I think that's probably why people are talking about it um, a little bit more, because instead of sort of certifying annually, this would be in connection with um, the resolution, and it would be very targeted to, you know, again, what, sort of what was the misconduct at issue, and because the effectiveness of the compliance program is going to turn on whether or not you fixed the yeah. issues that led to the misconduct in the first place. I love it. <laughs> I mean, to the one, it connects uh, at the hip, so to speak, the CEO and and the CCO that they need to work together to to have a sustainable real compliance program. Um, and at the end of the day, 
it should never get to this point where the certifications, which are at the end of a settlement um, and prosecution, should never get to that point for a company. So the specter of a certification and the sub-certifications really create accountability by management. Um, and I've written, as you know, about boards being liable and CCOs being liable at the uh, because of the actions or inactions of, of management, sometimes including the CEO. So I think you put it uh, very well that it's an exclamation point and it connects at the hip, the CEO and the, uh, the, the chief compliance officer, particularly because large companies uh, these days can just write a check um, for the monetary amount of penalties and the remediation, it's oftentimes just one quarter's profit for some of these companies. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the, the again, a, a successful, in the wake of a criminal resolution, I think what the department would like to see, and hopefully what the company would want also, is that, you know, not just, you know, an acknowledgement that there was uh, criminal misconduct, but the, the, a, a program and a process in place to prevent it in the future. Um, And that means really, again, changing the culture and changing the processes so that issues can be spotted and dealt with earlier in the future. Um, And and frankly, that misconduct is dissuaded. And so that is really focused on, um, again, I think when you put individuals on the hook in that way, so directly, it just, it does add a lot of pressure. Um, and I think if that, you know, maybe isn't being generated by the culture, I think maybe there's a, a sense that that external pressure would help a company really focus on what does it mean to have an effective compliance program? Because if one individual is going to exactly. sign off on it under penalty of, you know, false statements, they really need to understand that it's functioning well. Um, so I, I think that's right. And human nature being, I'm not going to sign until you sign, (laughs) it it ripples down as to people understanding who owns which controls and where they fit in so that then by the time it gets to the CEO and CCO, um, it's meaningful. It's not just paper signatures like a paper program. I think that's right. And I think sometimes what we see also is that um, compliance is a little free floating. I think your your idea your idea of who owns what is is really key. You know, sometimes we see these like really great looking compliance programs, but they float within the corporate structure. Yes. You know, no one is ultimately accountable for anything because there's no final sign off, and the, you know the, the information gets generated, but it doesn't actually get. Um, directed in the right place and it's gathered but not implemented and and the buck doesn't stop anywhere in particular. Um, and like I said, some of the programs are actually designed that way because they don't want to have the C-suite ultimately responsible. If something were to happen, they can say, oh, well, I didn't, like that's, the information didn't get to me. And I think when you put certifications in place, it helps tether a compliance program within an organization um, to the very top and make sure that it is being empowered the way that it's supposed to be. Absolutely. Our next and last topic is is about economic sanctions, particularly as we witness the ongoing war um, in the Ukraine and the coordinated and international rollout of economic sanctions um, ramping up uh, against Russia and their designated nationals. The DOJ 
in recent speeches, including um, by Lisa Monaco on June 16th, referred to sanctions as the, the new FCPA. I'm wondering if you could highlight what that means, particularly in the context of enforcement, self-reporting of uh, sanctions violations, and how and where compliance plays a key role in that regard, especially around national security. So, Eric, as you said, on June 16th, uh, Lisa Monaco gave uh, a speech in which she described sanctions as the new FCPA. And what she explained she meant by that was saying that, um, you know, FCPA is sort of in practice, the statute's been a lot around for a long time. Mm -hmm. But as the sort of business company has gotten business, excuse me, community has gotten sort of more international and sort of as we're all more interconnected, um, the FCPA has sort of become more relevant to an expanding number of industries and companies because there are so many more companies now um, that operate uh, globally and in foreign countries. And as a result, you know, there's unfortunately more of an opportunity for there to be bribery um, and sort of more of a focus uh, from the Department of Justice's perspective on enforcing the FCPA across a wider range of industries because they're just operating sort of globally in a way that they might not have before. And so as a result, you've seen sort of a a large increase in FCPA uh, investigations and prosecutions over the last 20 years or so. Um, And I think what she was sort of saying in connection with the FCPA and sanctions was that, you know, with the war in Ukraine and again with the global economy, uh, something that's happening sort of over between Russia and Ukraine from a sanctions perspective actually can really have an impact on many more companies today than, than it would have in the past because everything is so interconnected. And so the question of whether a company is in, engaging in misconduct from a sanctions perspective is going to be relevant to many more industries and many more companies. And so I think what she was signaling is she expects that there may be an increase in investigations and prosecutions from a sanctions perspective, again, because you know so many more companies may find themselves in a position where they might be violating the sanctions regime in connection with Russia because they're just sort of doing business overseas in a way that they weren't before. And so I think what she's sort of signaling from a compliance perspective is if you're operating uh, you know, internationally, not only should you be from a compliance perspective thinking about, you know, what are potential FCPA violations um, and processes in place around, uh, you know, bribery and third party vendors and sort of through that lens, but you should also be looking at it from a national security sanctioned lens as well. And so, you know, we've seen that the, the department has, I think there has been an increase in sanctions, investigations, and prosecutions, and they have been focused on um, businesses beyond just banks and financial institutions, but companies that are operating, um, you know, in these various geographical areas overseas. And so that, I think, is what she meant by sort of tying the FCPA and sanctions enforcement together and, and analogizing them. And I think from a compliance perspective, it just means, again, a successful compliance program is going to identify risks, not just sort of FCPA risks, but now also sanctions risks and be up to date on, you know, sort of the, the who's on various 
lists and, and who they need to be worried about doing business with and what are the processes in place to make sure that they're not violating sanctions and sort of being up to date on the sanctions regime, because that obviously changes uh, over time and with something like the invasion of Ukraine yeah. um, may change dramatically in a short period of time. So it really just means having the capacity to understand you know, what the current state of the law is and making sure that the company is in compliance with it. I think what's fascinating is that the, the statement crystallizes the fact that FCPA and um, sanctions are not mutually exclusive. Oftentimes or sometimes um, bribery and corruption is involved in order to evade sanctions. That, that's point one. Point two is, and our podcasts uh, have really underscored this, is often, as, as you say, my words, not yours, that uh, the banks felt that they could, um, in the scheme of things, not worry as much as the non-banks on foreign corrupt practices, uh, bribery and corruption, if you will. Um, but the Goldman case certainly underscores uh, the, the, that that's not correct. Second, many uh, non-banks felt that the banks really were the only ones worry, that need to worry about sanctions. And the fact that these two are not mutually exclusive and that the DOJ is emphasizing not only FCPA enforcements, but now sanctions enforcement, particularly around national security, really pulls it all together. Um, is that a fair way to describe it? I think that's right. I mean, the way that Lisa Monaco talked about it is sort of, you know, SCPA and sanctions, you know, you're taking a really global view. Mm -hmm. The goal of those investigations and prosecutions is to, uh, you know, prosecute those who profit from corruption and crime around the world. Uh, you know, to the extent that they're American companies or the companies that sort of touch on the American financial system. And so whether that's, again, by an office holder taking a bribe or an oligarch evading sanctions, it's the same sort of encouraging criminal practices in the business world that those regimes are targeted at. And so I think that's right. I think they're, it, they have a lot of similarities in some ways. And, and as you said, it's going to cross industry. So it's not just banks that need to worry about sanctions and Fortune 500 companies that need to worry about the FCPA, but an effective compliance program for either of those types of companies needs to look at and she really emphasized the other thing I think she was very focused on was um, self-disclosure. So not only does the compliance program need to be aware of and focused on these risks and, and identifying them, but just as sort of the FCPA has a self-disclosure program, um, the National Security Division has a self-disclosure program for sanctions. And she really emphasized that an effective compliance program um, is one that's identifying uh, these risks and addressing them and then disclosing when appropriate. Exactly. It reflects the culture of the organization to raise their hand. And as Lisa Monaco said in her speech uh, quite well, call us before we call you. Um, that's, that says volumes. Alex, I, I really want to thank you so much again for joining our podcast. Both of our discussions, uh, part one and part two, have been really insightful. And I know our audience over both podcasts will, will benefit greatly. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks to our listening audience for tuning in. For more information on enhancing your company's compliance program, please visit our website at guideposttsolutions.com. 